Um, we have a guest speaker with us today. He's not really a guest to our church, but he's a guest speaker. Uh, Dan Stolbarger is one of our elders and one of my friends, and he's a great teacher. And uh, him and his wife lead an organization that take people to Israel and allow them to see the Holy Lands. And so uh, my wife and I, I've, I've been with my wife once to Israel with him and Sharon, and then I went back with uh, an anthem trip a couple years ago with them, and our minds have just been blown by the ministry that they have to Israel. And so it's an honor to have Dan teach this morning and to wrap up Matthew chapter 9 for us. So give Dan a big, warm welcome. Okay, there's the universal symbol gesture. I need some help. So uh, I'll give you the gesture, and you tell me what it means. Are you ready? What do you think this means? We're number, how many think it means we're number one? Yeah? If you're part of my generation, this actually meant one way. If you're part one of the Jesus movement, this was a symbol that you would always give, you know, one way. I'm going to transform this gesture at the end of my message, and I'm going to call it the anthem challenge, but now you have to wait to the end of the message to know what I'm talking about. But for all of those that are sports fans, and we're sitting there saying we're number one, if you're a Chiefs fan, you're feeling pretty good. If you're a Clemson Tiger fan, you're probably pretty good. When we met one another here beforehand, I noticed the hat behind me, so I had to check, because being a native San Diegan, I can't even say the name D Dodgers, okay? I, I can't do it. It just, I don't know if we can say that in church, but anyhow, if you're that, congratulations. But I think there's a better meaning for this. And so this is the way that I sort of bait the hook and throw it out and say, you know, you got to hang with me through the entire message to know what the heck is he talking about. Our text today is from Matthew 9. And I think it's very, very, very timely for us. And the amazing thing about the Word of God, the amazing thing about Jesus as you know, is that he and it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we study the word, it's important for us to understand what did those original hearers actually hear? And yet it doesn't stop there, right? We're just not historians. It's not like, oh, I've got a lot of information. No, now all of a sudden we say, what does this word say to me right now where I'm living today? And is there a future application to it? So keep that in mind as I read this to you. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 9, and I hope you do have your Bibles, very important that we're people of the word, people of the book, and there's no substitute for the word of God, right? Can I get an amen? No substitute. So open your Bibles, Matthew 9, 
And I'm going to start reading to you in verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered distressed and dejected they were like sheep having no shepherd and then he said to his disciples the harvest truly is plentiful but the laborers are few Therefore, pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of the word of God. We thank you that it is the same yesterday, today, forever. We pray that we would both see it in our mind's eyes and hear it. You tell us often in your word, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Help us to take a glimpse back to understand the context, what they heard at this time, when you showed up, when you visited the synagogues, when you taught the gospel of the kingdom, when you went about healing and you saw people as weary. But we don't want to stop there. We want to look through the eyes of today and realize we're the same group. And we pray that you would give us the courage, the strength, to be among those that are labeled here as the few, that are willing to go out into the fields to harvest. So we pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. Well, as Chris mentioned my life changed about, let me do the math, 15 years ago or so when I took my first trip to Israel. And uh, I have found that there's no substitute for the experience of being in the land, especially if you love the Bible. If you love the Bible, then God has a gift for you. And it's the land of Israel. Because when you're there, when you touch it, when you smell it, when you walk through it, everything that you've read in the word of God explodes into living color. There's no experience for it. There's nothing like it. So here at Anthem, by the way, this is the advertisement portion of the message. 
here at Anthem, we're going to Israel in 2021. We're hoping that we go in mid-February, but this pandemic is uh, keeping Israel at this time from being open. We have friends on the land, in the land that say, maybe. But if we don't go in February, mark my words, as soon as Israel opens, we're going. And I hope and I pray that you'll consider going with us. Because ain't nothing like it. I'm going to leave some cards over there at the end with uh, just my email on it. And that, if you want more information, you can go to the website. You can see Anthem's trip that's highlighted there. But I'm now going to take you in a time machine. Because it's important that we understand the context here. What in the heck is going on? And so it actually says in our text that Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. I'm going to show you some pictures. So as the slides come up, I'm never quite sure because I can't see them. You should probably be looking at now a slide of the Sea of Galilee with some cities around it. Do you see that? What's up? Okay, some of these cities should be familiar to you. Um, Bethsaida. Uh, disciples of Jesus were out of Bethsaida. James and John. Uh, Capernaum. You see Capernaum? The North Shore. Did you know that this is what Jesus would consider to be his hometown? Did you know that Jesus did more miracles in Capernaum than anywhere else. Most people assume that he split his time between Jerusalem and the Galilee. Not so. He spent the majority of his time in this northern portion of the Sea of Galilee. You see Magdala that's there. So I'm going to show you some synagogues because in actuality, our text begins with the fact that Jesus made his way to different synagogues. And I want you to understand what was taking place. I want you to understand the atmosphere that was there at the time. I want you to understand what Jesus was attempting to do. So, the next slide you're going to see is my favorite place in all of Israel. It's called Mount Arbel. And from the top of this peak, as you're looking out and you see the blue lake of the Sea of Galilee, that would be the northern shore of the Galilee. So as you're looking out in that area, that's where Jesus calls home. And I'm going to show you a synagogue that's there. And there's something in that next slide about this synagogue that is... Kind of mind-boggling. Now, I said that I was going to talk about this at the end, but this is a 4th century synagogue. This is in the town of Kafir Nahom, or you know it probably as Capernaum. And even though it's a 4th century synagogue, in this next slide, you're going to see 
that same synagogue, but it's built on black basalt, that foundation. That, my friends, would have been the foundation of the synagogue at the time of Jesus. And so as we read our scriptures, we know that there's a few different times that the gospel writers will talk about, and Jesus came into the synagogue or the meeting place in Capernaum. This is it. And if you've been tracking with us over the last almost a year, probably, as we've made our way through Matthew, you realize that Jesus did some incredible things. In the next slide, you should see the synagogue in the background, and you should see sort of what is a housing complex in front of it. This is one of my favorite places in Israel. Not just because of the synagogue and everything that I can tell you about that, but this little housing project, remember how I said, if you love the Bible, this is going to come alive? Let me take you back during the time of Jesus here and imagine his popularity. He's go, it's going crazy in Capernaum. Okay? In the synagogue itself, he's already done some healings. There is a man with a withered right hand that meant, by the way, in those days, in that culture, if your hand was withered, and especially if, since it was your right hand, guess what? You were not allowed to be in the synagogue. Because have you ever heard the phrase, let's give them the right hand of fellowship, right? Your right hand was your social hand, your fellowship hand. If that was withered or unclean, your left hand, that's your bathroom hand. And so you are excluded. So Jesus is in the synagogue. It is packed out, and he identifies this guy. And what does he do? Does Jesus say, let's come to the side here. I got something for you. Or does he call him out and say, stretch out your hand? The embarrassment of that? And yet the man stretches his hand out, and in faith, Jesus not only heals him, he restores him to the fellowship. Can you hear the oohs and the ahs? They know this guy. What else has happened in this place? Well, in this location, you remember the story. Well, let me give you a little bit more backdrop. Right behind Capernaum are the hills of the Galil, the Galilee. And it's here that a little boy was willing to share his lunch. Remember that story? Loaves and fishes, thousands, in fact, 5,000 people being fed because this little boy would share his lunch. Can you imagine the popularity of Jesus at this time. And by the way, just over by Bethsaida, on the other side of the Jordan, we've heard it said, I'm taking you back now, that there was this demoniac that was going crazy, and Jesus actually healed him. 
And then we've heard it also said that as he was making his way back to Capernaum, they actually went out on a boat, and as they were heading back, there was a massive storm, and, and it was said that Jesus was actually asleep. And yet, as they woke him up because they feared their very lives, he just spoke these words, be still. And even the winds and the waves obeyed him. We've also heard it said that his disciples were fishing and they could catch nothing. And he, he, he said, throw the nets on the other side of the boat. And can you believe it? As they were hauling it in, the nets started to break because there were so many fish. And then, I don't know if I can actually believe this one, but it's actually been said that during a storm in the middle of the night, the disciples were heading back home and they thought they saw a ghost. But in reality, it was Jesus walking on the water. And in fact, we heard that one of his disciples, Peter, we all know him, right? He actually said to Jesus, if that's you, can I come? And he gets out of the boat, and he walks on water. Do you understand what this little town was starting to experience? And so, whenever Yeshua, Jesus, if he's going to every synagogue in the area, when word started to spread... Here comes Jesus. Guess what? Everybody and their brother is coming out to meet Jesus. And in fact, in this area, we're told that these guys had a friend and he was lame. He couldn't walk. So you know what they did? They pushed through the crowd. And Jesus couldn't, I mean, these guys couldn't even get him into the house. There were so many people but they were friends. And so they started to climb up to the roof. And on the very roof of one of these places, they started to take it apart, and they lowered their friend down to Jesus. And you know what Jesus said? It says, and he saw their faith. That's a sermon in itself, right? He saw their faith, and he says to them, your sins are forgiven. There were some Pharisees in the group that thought, who are you that you're going to forgive sins? Only God can do that. And what did Jesus say? So that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say unto you, take up your mat and walk. Are you tracking with me? Do you realize what has taken place in this little bitty area on the northern shore of the Galilee that Jesus calls home? So wherever he goes, there are throngs of people. We heard Chris talk a couple weeks ago that again, as he was in Capernaum, that there was a, the head of the synagogue there, the pictures that you saw. He had a daughter, and his daughter was to the point of death. In fact, we're told that she's dead. And he's got to get to Jesus, but it's the crowds. 
He makes his way. He finds Jesus and he says, can you come with me? And Jesus says what? Let's go. But on his way, there's a woman. 12 years of suffering, a discharge of blood. The crowds were massive, but every, on the way to Jairus' house, he stops and he says, who touched me? And the disciples said, you've got to be kidding me. Who didn't touch you? You know, the crowd, we're, we're packed, we're jam-packed in this place. We're trying to get to Jairus' house. And he said, Jesus said, no, 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 no. Somebody touch me. Can you imagine being Jairus saying, we need to go? But Jesus never would walk past somebody that wanted to touch him. So he heals this woman. Probably pretty well known in the community. So the word has spread. We're back in that time. But I said that that picture that you just looked at, 4th century. Now let me take you back up to the top of Mount Arbel on this next slide. We're right back up on top and we're looking out. You can probably see the north. But now I'm going to take you to the base of this mountain. Because there is now a, this isn't it by the way, so you still got to hang in there. This is a first century synagogue. So as you look at the floor plan of this synagogue, by the way, I should mention that this synagogue was recently discovered within the last 20 years. First century. Difference between fourth and first. This we do know now. As you look at this synagogue, we know that 99.9% accuracy that Jesus was actually in this synagogue. Can you imagine what it feels like to go to this place? To, let's kind of zoom through these that we see here, because I think I've given you some aerial shots that you can see this recently discovered first century synagogue. And now you should be looking at one that has a roof over the top of it. And as you can see, it's not that huge, although I've been told that you can fit 200 people in here. And you see in the middle of that structure, you see what looked like a box. It's actually called a bima. And this is where the scrolls would be laid out. And by the way, I should tell you, there's something different between church and synagogue. And when Jesus, by the way, oh, I better be careful. I don't want to go too far down this road. But when Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Don't think in your mind brick and mortar. Okay, he's going to build some structures. No, we'll talk about what he meant in a second. But the synagogue... In that day, they didn't have their big screens at home. They didn't have Blessed Be Them. They didn't have CNN and Fox and, and MSNBC and you name it. They didn't have that. How do you get your information? Well, you go to the synagogue. It's a public gathering place. 
Guess what else they didn't have? How many Bibles you got at home? They didn't have them. If they wanted to read the scrolls, where are you going to go? You're going to go to the synagogue. Where are you going to hear about the news? What's going on? You're going to go to the synagogue. This is the public hangout place. And sure enough, this is where you're going to find Jesus. Right? So he's here. This is a first century synagogue. And then as you look through the last of the scroll, these things, you'll see two more. But because of time, we'll move on. I wanted you to see it. I wanted you to understand the atmosphere of what's taking place here. And then we read in this next portion of Scripture that it says that while he visited these places, that he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the one thing that I hate when it comes to Scripture is what I call Christianese. It's like somebody needs to raise their hand and say, so um, what is the gospel of the kingdom? What was he preaching at that time? Do we know? Well, I can tell you what he wasn't preaching. Let's start with that. Because this atmosphere, and by the way, remember I said that that. The word Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think we can step out of the first century into today. Because let me tell you what he wasn't preaching. This was not a message about the overthrow of the evil governmental powers and the transformation of society. He's going to do that, by the way, but he didn't intentionally do it on his first visit. He's coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to set up his government, his kingdom. He's going to reign on a throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. But we're waiting for that coming. Here, what did the people want most from Jesus at this time? Do you understand how corrupt, how oppressed these people were by the Romans? Do you know that they were fasting and praying, God, please send us the Mashiach, send us the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, he's got one job and one job only, get rid of the rotten Romans, set us free. In fact, they so much wanted that that when Jesus didn't meet their expectations, what did they do to him? You know. They went from a political statement, by the way, the word Hoshana, Hosanna, is a political statement. Okay? When Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, the last week of his life, we call it Palm Sunday, right? 
when he's coming into Jerusalem, he chooses to ride into Jerusalem on not a horse, but a donkey, indicating that he's coming in peace. And yet the people have taken palm branches, symbol of freedom, by the way. They're waving their palm branches. This is a pro-political Jesus party. And they're shouting, Hosiana. They're shouting, Jesus, save us now. And what does that mean for them? Get rid of the Romans. But here's where we stand today. Jesus didn't come to fix the externals. Jesus came to do a deeper work inside. So we might sit here today and say, Jesus, fix our government. We are the divided states of America. No matter what you say, Jesus, come. We're weary. I'm sick and tired of this pandemic. Our nation's being torn apart. Come fix it. By the way, I should probably mention this. If you're a believer, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, I'm going to break some hard news to you. You're not a Republican. Nor are you a Democrat. You're a monarchist. Because you believe in a king that is all about setting up his kingdom right now. And we're going to find in this story, this event, he's going to say, and where are my workers? Where are those that are willing to go out and just preach the gospel of the kingdom? So I've established the point that the gospel of the kingdom is not Jesus coming to fix the government, right? So what is it? When Jesus speaks about the gospel of the kingdom, it's about God saving rule in his reign. When Jesus preaches about the gospel of the kingdom, it's a message about what Jesus has done to save sinners. Ultimately, this is a message about a king who died for his enemies so that those who believe in him would inherit the very kingdom that he's purchased for them. Again, this gospel of the kingdom, it's going to do so much more than fixing a government. It would do so much more than just ridding the Jews of their oppressors. The gospel would turn the world upside down and make the dwelling of place of God no more in brick and mortar buildings, temples made by hand, But now, the gospel of the kingdom means that the very God of the universe is going to take residence in you. 
And so, how does Jesus validate this? How does he say, look at what the prophets have written and look how I've fulfilled that so that you understand who I am and what I'm about so that you then can go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom, the good news, the fact that Jesus saves. Jesus heals. As we go on, we will read that not only did he preach the gospel of the kingdom, but he healed every sickness and every disease. Is this important? Well, it's very important because it's the way Jesus validated who he was and that his message was from God. How do I know that? Well, I don't have, should have, but I don't have the picture of another synagogue here. But I can take you there in your mind's eye. This synagogue is in a little bitty village. Josephus, the renowned historian, as he was sort of plotting and writing history of the Roman Empire, he doesn't even include this little village in his maps. It was so small. In fact, the reputation of this place was, you've heard it before, can anything good come out of this place? How many of you know the name of that synagogue? Nazareth. So there's a synagogue in Nazareth, and at a certain point of his life, Jesus goes into that synagogue. Do you have that visual in your mind? It's not pews. It's like a U-shape. There's a stone where the scrolls are laid out. And in a synagogue, you don't just have one pastor preaching. You have different people that would come up and read a portion of Scripture. And on this particular day, Jesus stands up, comes, opens the scroll, and he reads. You know what he reads? He reads his mission statement. He says, it is written that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then what does he say about that? That the blind would see, the lame would walk, he would proclaim good news to the poor, he would bind up the brokenhearted. And then he had the audacity as we're sitting in the synagogue reading that, and we're all sort of nodding, saying, amen, that's the Messiah, Mashiach, amen. And what does he conclude with? Today, in your hearing, it's fulfilled. And what do all of us righteous members of the synagogue do? Do we pull out our palm branches and start waving them and saying, Hosanna? Or do we say, who does this guy think he is? Isn't this Jesus? We're not even sure about his parents. Isn't this the guy that plays with our kids in the street as he's growing up? Who does he think he is? And they sought to push him off a cliff. And then we're told that Jesus leaves that place. And you know where he's heading? I showed you the picture. He's heading to Capernaum. And then he begins to do all these things. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, 
He's opened the prison doors. He's healed demoniacs. The reputation of Jesus is I'm doing all these things to validate the fact that I am who the scriptures say that I am. Wow. And so in this day, he's in this synagogue. And what is he doing? He's saying, I have not come to fix the government. I've come to fix you. Wow. It says then in verse 36 that when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Powerful words. When Jesus saw the multitudes, when Jesus saw them in Magdala, when Jesus saw them in Capernaum, and I dare say, when Jesus saw them in Coeur d'Alene, that he looked upon them with compassion. Why? And by the way, compassion in the Hebrew concept, it's not your heart. Okay? It's your gut. It's a very powerful word, compassion in the Hebrew. That it's a, you've heard the phrase, that's a gut punch. And if you've ever read through the scriptures to, to realize the emotions of Jesus, you know, he had emotions, right? You remember when he heals Lazarus? What's he do? Does he march in and say, hey, what's the big problem here? I'm the resurrection in life. Lazarus, come forth. Or does the surroundings of the people in such anguish emote from him a gut punch, a deep sigh? In fact, our scriptures say that he wept because he realized the anguish. How was he at the uh, temple? How was that? Hey, you guys, you really shouldn't do that. Money changers sort of things. Or is he, is it a gut punch to him? Is he sitting there thinking, you've got to be kidding me? And is he making a whip and kicking tables over? This is that word that it's from the gut. And this is the word that Jesus has when he says, I have compassion for people. Not governments. I've got compassion for you and for you. I'm not the God of just nations. I'm your God. And in the Hebrew, still today, when we look at what took place in Isaiah where he says, it's me, that Hebrew phrase is tikkun olam. And you know what that literally means? That job description that Jesus gave when he read Isaiah 61 simply says this, I came to fix broken things. That's the ministry of Jesus. I didn't come to replace your government but I came to fix broken things. 
Not the broken things of your culture. I came to fix your broken things. That's who I am. So it says that he had compassion because they were weary. No need to show hands here. Anybody weary? Anybody burdened and heavy laden in these days? Anybody like me sick and tired of being sick and tired? You know what I mean? And not just within these four walls, when Jesus looks out at the multitudes of our city, Jesus has compassion. And he says, these people are weary. They're scattered. They're like sheep having no shepherd. By the way, let me tell you something about sheep. You might already know this, but they're dumb. They're prone to wander. They're fairly defenseless. I always find it interesting. Isn't this an oxymoron to you? That when we read in the book of Revelation, beware the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb? Whoa. What are we afraid of there? Left to themselves, sheep will not and cannot last very long. Just about any other domestic animal can kind of survive in the wild. Not sheep. They don't stand a chance. So Jesus is looking out at people filled with not judgment. He's not looking out saying, you guys need to get your act together. I've written all about this. Come on. No, Jesus is full of gut-wrenching compassion because we're weary and we're scattered like sheep. You think that's true today? I know it is. So the question, what are we going to do about it? Does he have a solution? And so then he says to his disciples, by the way, that word in the Hebrew is talmidim, it basically means he says to his disciplined ones, Those that would say, Jesus is my Messiah, he's my Lord, he's my God. He says to his followers, and I would dare say that 90%, if not 100% in this room right now, would fit into that category. So he says to us, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I would say this message is true now, probably more than ever before. But who will God choose to use? Who are these laborers? Will God choose to use Chris, Josh, Angela, Kyle, Jacob, Becca, Renee, our staff? Are these the ones that God's saying, you need to pray for these folks because we're sending them out, right? 
Who does God choose to use? You know, sometimes we think about the heroes of our faith. And we think of people like Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah and Peter and Paul, Esther, Ruth, Rahab, Mary. And we think, oh, what a powerful force. Did you know Abraham was a liar? You know, Abraham went to his wife and said, we're in a pretty dicey area. Can you tell everybody you're my sister? You know, Moses was not a very articulate speaker. In fact, his rabbis will say he had a stuttering problem. And how often did Moses say, you got the wrong guy? How about David? Scriptures actually say about David that he's a man after God's own heart. But you know what? How would you like to be Uriah? You think Uriah would stand up and say, amen, that man's a right after God's own heart. Yeah. You know he was a murderer? You know David was an adulterer, and yet David was the greatest king of Israel, and it said of him he had a heart after God. How about Elijah? There's a prophet for you, right? Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Calling fire down from heaven. Wow. But did you know that after he does that on Mount Carmel, that word gets to him from Jezebel that she's a bit upset. All of her dinner guests have been killed. And do you know what Elijah does? He says, bring that Jezebel to me right now. And she'll, I'll tell her what's going to happen. No. He leaves. He turns tail and he runs as far away as possible. These are our heroes. So you know what? If God can use them, why can't he use us? I'm going to have the worship group come up at this time. Let me say again to you that God, that Jesus, he doesn't always fix the eternal, but he always heals the internal. Let me say this as well. I, this is how I'm going to conclude this message, okay? It's like a boxer. He give you a series of jabs. But be careful because I'm coming with the haymaker, okay? So what about us? How does this impact us? What's our message supposed to be? What's this mean? Our message should not, cannot be, that we go out into this harvest and say, you need to come to church with me. Eh, wrong. You know what our message is? You need Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. Because I'm going to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel that Jesus came to save the lost. And he says to his church what? Go build a nice building. Have a coffee station. Enjoy the fellowship with one another. Only reach out and love the like-minded. That's my church. The gates of hell won't stand against that. No. 
He does not say that. He says, go. I have compassion for the people. They're weary. They're scattered. But who can I send and who will go? That's the words that God asked Isaiah. And Isaiah said, here I am, Lord. Send me. So, what's the anthem challenge? Will you go? Would you be willing to be intentional? Would you be willing to say, hey, here I am. I want to win one. I want to love one. Over this next year, I'm issuing the challenge. If you see me out and about, outside of these four walls, I hope you'll raise a finger to me. This one. (laughs) Hey, I knew you were paying attention. Because I want you to remind me of this challenge. That I'm saying today, here I am, Lord, send me. I want to be one of those laborers in the field that go out. I don't want to just be nice to Christians. I want to see the lost come to know Jesus. I want to make sure that there's last one, at least one last great revival in my day of people coming to know my Jesus. Because he's the only one that can give them his shalom, his peace. So my challenge to you, will you do that? Will you just simply say, give me one, Lord. I'm going to be intentional. I'm going to add this to my prayer list daily, that you would give me the opportunity to win one person for you. And I'm going to ask Chris, if it's possible a year from now, if I can address you once again, say, how'd you do in your anthem challenge? Because let me tell you, if you're not intentional, I 100% guarantee it won't happen. Does God want to use you to reach the lost? I can guarantee you 100%, yes, he does. But we have to be willing. I got a little nudge from heaven this week. I'll end with this. My son Trevor went to heaven just over a year ago. And every so often, I feel like he gives me a nudge. And just out of the blue, yesterday, somebody sent an email to my wife saying, did you see this? And my son was a graphic designer, and he, before he went to heaven, he was working on a website for a person who had a ministry, and guess what the name of their ministry was? Each one, win one. And I thought, that's my boy up in heaven giving his dad a nudge saying, bring it, pal. Preach this message because the church needs to get out there and be part of those that will reap the harvest. Amen? God bless you.